leadership. Very few words polarize a crowd like that one. A mentor, a teacher, a coach, an authority figure who helps someone, who directs them, who guides them in the ways in which they need to go, those are inspiring stories and accounts. And on the other hand, mentors and teachers and coaches and authority figures who abuse their power, those abound. And the pain and the confusion and the hurt and the distrust leads us to guard ourselves from trusting leadership and future disappointments. As I've studied this week, my heart is heavy because I know that at that word leadership, some of you, though may not recoil physically, you do internally. As I've prayed through the directory and just seeing faces and remembering stories as to how you have been adversely affected by leadership, my prayer has been that God's grace would heal you this morning, would mend your wounds even through this sermon. But not only is leadership polarizing, leadership is vital. It's necessary. It's necessary for organizations and institutions and companies whose aim is net profit, whose aim is services rendered, whose aim is global influence, or whatever other temporary end and aim they're they're shooting for, leadership is necessary in order to get there. And so as I think about how inspiring leadership can be and how painful and how vital it is in secular organizations and institutions, I think, how much more so in the church? How much more so is the pain how much more so is the inspiration and the necessity when we're speaking of the local church? John Stott says that the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. And if that is true, if the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God, then we can say that a biblical model of leadership in the church then ensures how that church can effectively accomplish those eternal purposes of God. The church is meant to display the glory of her God in her worship and in her witness. And oftentimes, church leadership is either a great encouragement to that end or a large obstacle keeping us from that end. And as we saw last week in the latter part of 1 Timothy chapter 2, church leadership is not a man-made idea. We see it in the Bible. It's designed by God. It's given to us by God. And as with everything else that God does, it's not just that he gives us a design for something, but it's that, it's that there's good in the design. And because he's given the design and he's given it to the church, it's not ours 
to be able to call the shots. No, our responsibility as it pertains to church leadership is to submit joyfully to his good design, to prayerfully labor to protect it in the local church that we're members of, and to humbly encourage others to do the same. I want to say that again because I believe this is the responsibility of every Christian. To joyfully submit to God's good design in church leadership. To prayerfully labor to protect it in the local church that you are a member of. And to encourage others to do the same. And so this morning, it's my responsibility now to faithfully preach what God has preserved in 1 Timothy chapter 3 so that we might be built up to the praise of his glory and grace. And so join with me as we pray. Good and great King, we approach you, O holy God, because of the work of Christ. We're thankful for the access that we've been granted to you by him that's been applied through your spirit. And so for the next few moments, would you help us think rightly about your church so that we can rightly act out what it means to faithfully display your glory. And so graciously attend the words that I would speak. I am reminded and even partly overwhelmed preaching a passage under which there's so much room for me to grow. And so would you call me up and would you call the other elders up and would you call other men up? Would you call all of us as a church up to joyfully submit and to prayerfully protect your good design? We love you and we thank you that you have first loved us. May that be evident in how we gather around your word, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you are in need of a Bible, there are a few in front of you. If you pick up the New American Standard and you go to the New Testament, you can find where we are at on page 163. If you turn to the first page 163 that you find, you will be somewhere in the Old Testament and you will be confused for the rest of the sermon. And so the New Testament, back portion, page 163. In his book, Finding Faithful Elders and Deacons, the Bidi Anwabwile states that a church without godly leaders is an endangered church. And a church that does not train leaders is an unfaithful church. A church without godly leaders is an endangered church, and a church that does not raise or does not train leaders is an unfaithful church. And the reality is that, that, that churches will not rise above the health and the maturity of her leaders. And that's one of the reasons that the Bible speaks often about church leadership. Think about it, proud, mocking pastors tend to replicate proud, mocking congregations. Meek, gentle, and lowly pastors tend to replicate meek, gentle, and lowly congregations. 
And again, as, a, as one of the pastors of Covenant Life Church, this is sobering for me. And this places within me a healthy fear of the Lord. I believe I speak for our other elders who would say, yes and amen. The New Testament reveals that God has given two offices of leadership to the church. Two offices of leadership to the church. Those two offices would be the office of elder, who I appreciate how David Platt has sort of put a put this on a bumper sticker pretty well. David Platt says, elders are those who are servant leaders, and the other office is that of deacon, and Platt says those are leading servants. So elders who are servant leaders and deacons who are leading servants. And those are the two offices that God has graciously designed and given to his church this morning, we're going to consider the, f- the first, the office of elder. I would invite you to come back next week if you're thinking, ah, what's a deacon? I'd love to know what a deacon is. That's what we'll talk about next week, the office of deacons. And the book of Acts records over and over again that as the gospel goes forth, the gospel is proclaimed and heralded and preached, that God by his spirit is using that gospel message to bring people to faith. And as people come to faith, they turn from their sin, they trust in Christ alone, they are then gathered together. And as they're gathered together, they're, they're given the unique privilege of being a display of God's manifold wisdom and glory to a watching world. Well, how will they do that? How will they be built up? How will they be, be led? And that's where we see God's gracious gift to the church as those that would be led in their worship and in prayer and in right living. And the precedent that we see is that those who would lead are called elders. We see this in Acts chapter 14. We see this in Titus chapter 1. If you even look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, we see that Jesus gives the gift of an elder to the church. And Paul even lets us know why in Ephesians 4. 11 and 12. Why is it that God has given elders to the church? Well, they're given to equip Christians to do what God has made them to do. And so if you are a Christ follower this morning, let me just remind you that you are in ministry. There is work that God has laid out and prepared beforehand that you would walk into. And so you are to be effective in ministry. How then will you be built up for that ministry? Well, that's the gift of an elder. Elders are meant to come alongside the congregation, not because they're better, but because they have been given to the congregation as a gift to come and labor alongside to build up from the teaching of the word and from their leadership and oversight and prayer. And I'd point you back to last week's sermon if you are wondering why we believe that God's good design for an elder is to be filled by a biblically qualified man. And for the good of your souls, would encourage you even to look to be members of churches who joyfully submit to God's good design there. All right, so if you've listened closely, then you've heard me use the word pastor a few times already. And I said there were two offices, the office of elder and the office of deacon. Well, what do we make of this, this other 
office or category of pastor. Look again at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, the office of overseer. Okay, Justin, you said elder. You've mentioned pastor. And Paul talks about overseer. And somehow those are three words, and you said there are only two offices. Thank you for your question. 1 Timothy 3 gives us two offices, the office of overseer and the office of deacon. And if you were to read Paul's other letters, what you see is that overseers do exactly what the name says. They give oversight to the people. Another way to translate oversight is to manage or to rule or to govern or to lead. We see this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, same word there, give oversight to his own household. And then if you were to flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, Paul's going to write and he's going to say, let the elders who govern, who rule, who lead, who do that well, be worthy of double honor. And so just in the book of 1 Timothy, we find that Paul references overseer and he references elder. And those two names are interchangeable. They're synonymous. The things that we see Paul say overseers do are the same things that we see Paul say elders do. And so you have overseer and you have elder. Well, what about pastor? Consider Acts chapter 20 with me. In Acts chapter 20... Paul gathers together the elders of the church at Ephesus. Listen to verse 17. And so from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, and he called to him the elders of the church. So it's clear who Paul is calling to come to him. He's calling the elders to come. And he gathers them together. And this is what he says in verse 28. Speaking to the elders, be on guard for yourselves and for all of the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. And so again, Acts chapter 20, elder, overseer, same thing. But then look at the next, the next word. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. What is it that overseers and elders do? They shepherd. They're pastors. It's the noun form of the verb. 1 Peter 5 affirms this. Peter's writing, and he says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. So what is he exhorting the elders to do? Very first word in verse 2. To shepherd, to pastor the flock of God among you. And so when I say there's one office in the New Testament, I'm meaning the office of elder. We could also say it's the office of an overseer. We could also say it's the office of a pastor. Those terms are used interchangeably all throughout the, the, the New Testament. The other office is that of deacon. And so depending on how well I'm able to remember, I will try to refer the rest of the sermon to the office of of elder. I'm almost certain that I will not do that 
throughout the whole sermon. I, I'll probably say pastor, and I'm referring to the same office. And this is what I know about passages like this. Passages like this may be tempting for you to pass over because you're not a pastor. You may get to a portion of Scripture like this and go, ah, yeah, I, I know it's good, but it's not really relevant. Can I just tell you, if as a church we adopt that mentality, it will be to our detriment. It will be a grave mistake for us to reach this section of Scripture and say, let's just breeze through. Not a lot here. If I could just encourage maybe three groups of us this morning. Number one, to my sisters. Sisters that are single, just want to encourage you what we will read about today ought to be the kind of qualities and the standard that you look for in a man that you would want to marry. Sisters who are married, what we will read today ought to be the kind of qualities that you will pray for and encourage your husband to grow up into. And those that are single, and those that have been given the gift of singleness, this ought to be the kind of this ought to be the kind of man, and these ought to be the kind of qualities that you encourage among the brothers in your church family. And so don't think that because this is addressing men who would be pastors, that somehow this is uh, not relevant for you. Sisters, don't settle. Secondly, men, this passage calls every man up to aspire to this work. And it puts before us the kind of men that we ought to be. No matter your station of life, no matter your season of life. And I want, I want to hold up the standard and the qualifications of 1 Timothy chapter 3, not in a, hey man, you are never going to get here kind of way, but to say, hey man, there is, there is a good aspiration and a noble desire and a noble task that we can aim for. And it ought to be the aim of every one of us. Man, I pray that this church would be full of brothers who were saying, I may never get there, but my aim is to have my life marked by the qualities that the Lord lays out in this, in this section. What greater aspiration can you have in this life than serving the bride of Christ that, that he died to secure? And that's not saying that other jobs are not as important as this one, but this is a good and noble task to desire and then third just to the church in general everything that we will see in these qualifications this morning it ought in some measure to be true of every one of us every one of us and you say whoa whoa, whoa, whoa. i know that that elders are supposed to be able to teach and i don't do you remember what the great commission said we are to go and make disciples. How? By baptizing and by teaching. And so, in some measure, these qualifications ought to mark all Christ followers. But church, this also will show us the kind of men that we should be looking for that would lead the church. The kind of men that we should be praying for and encouraging and honoring. And so, and so, as we walk through these qualifications, I just want you to think of two things. Number one, to be actively thinking about who are men in this church that I see are growing in these ways and whose lives are marked by what it is that Paul lays out. 
And whoever those men are, encourage those men. Nominate those men. Pray for those men. Church, also be faithful to pray these things for your elders. Just because a man has been appointed once as an elder doesn't mean that he's got a lifelong standing there. He must continually be this kind of man. And it's your responsibility to ensure that they are. That's the privilege that you've been given. But even as we walk through these qualifications, I would just ask, allow the Holy Spirit to shine His his ever-searching spotlight onto your heart to say, where do I need to grow in this list of qualifications? And while there's some, depending on how you break it up, some 16 qualifications here, and you think, we thought last week's sermon was a little bit long. Uh, I can't say everything about these qualifications. And praise be to God, I won't say everything about these qualifications. But I do hope and pray that they give us an exposure to the kind of men that God gifts his church to, to lead. And so I want to, this morning, trace three aspects of God's good design for elders in the church. And we'll look at three things. Number one, we'll look at the elders' desire. Number two, we'll look at the elders' character. And number three, we'll look at the elders' work. So the elders' desire, the elders' character, and the elders' work. Number one, the elders' desire. Listen again to verse one. It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. The opening phrase clues us in to the importance of the matter at hand. It is a trustworthy statement. There are five times in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Those are called the pastoral epistles. There are five times that that phrase is used, and each time Paul is referencing some aspect of the gospel. The unalterable, the never fading, the never changing gospel message. In that phrase, it's a trustworthy statement, sort of sets apart everything that's coming after. You must listen in. This is of utmost importance. Some aspect of that gospel message of what Christ has done to forgive his people and to reconcile them back to God. And so by introducing the topic of church leadership with this same phrase, I think we're able to grasp just how fine of a task, just how noble of a work this really is. Notice what Paul says, if any man. Titus chapter 1 will say, if anyone. If any man or if anyone. If any man... Referencing the qualified among the body. If any man is qualified in the body, has a desire for the work, then that is a noble thing. That is a good thing. It doesn't say if anyone with a degree. It doesn't say if anyone with 20 years of experience. It doesn't say if anyone with a theological library. It says no, if anyone with a desire. And the word aspire, it means to stretch oneself or to reach out for or to strongly desire this office. If any man aspires, if if any man is willing to stretch himself 
to grow up into the office, it is a fine work that he desires to do. If he aspires for the office, it's a noble task that he desires to do. He can aspire for the office, but what, what's noble isn't merely that he's aspiring for the office, it's that he desires the work. He desires the work. He wants to give oversight. He wants to lead. He wants to pastor. And so let's just be clear. It's not some outright ungodly ambition or rogue pride for men in the church to say, I desire to be a pastor. We can do away with the false humility and say, I know you should never say that. I, I, I think there's a context where you should. Now, there can be ungodly motives that would lead this to be ungodly ambition or rogue pride. But it's just helpful. It's helpful to remember that the office and the topic of leadership in, in the New Testament is not talking about attaining a status. It's not talking about, I want to pursue a status. No, all throughout the New Testament, church leadership is seen as an act of service. And so what we're looking for is not someone who aspires for status. It's someone who desires to serve. It's not about the office. It's about the work. And so it's not this nine to five that you can just walk away from and forget, forget every night. As Charles Jefferson says, the shepherd's work is a humble work. Such as it has been from the beginning and such it must be until the end. A man must come down for this work. A shepherd cannot shine. His work must be done in obscurity. The thing that he does does not make for interesting copy. His work calls for continuous self-denial. It's a form of service which eats up a man's life. It makes a man old before his time. I'm 22. <laughs> Just. Every good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. If a man is dependent upon the applause of the crowd, he ought never to enter or desire it. The finest things that a shepherd does are out of sight and never get reported. And they are known mostly to himself, maybe one or two others, and to God. And so his joy is not that he's being talked about on earth, but, that, but it's that his name is written in heaven. This is, the, this is the work. This is the noble aspiration and good thing it is to desire. Perhaps you're hearing this and you heard me at the front say, I want to call up all the men. And perhaps you're thinking, no, 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 this office is just too noble. It's too fine of a task and too much of a work for the likes of me. Can I just remind you that the guy who wrote this to, to Timothy, he felt the same way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he's talking about how in the world has this, this unfathomable grace to share this message, how has that been entrusted to me? He even says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, not that we are adequate in and of ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. 
That's the heart cry of every pastor. I'm not adequate for this. Any adequacy that I would have would be from the Lord. And so, brothers, do not let the reality that you are too small quench a good desire. Though you may be too small, nothing is too big for God. No one should question whether a man's heart is in the office. The average call to be a pastor is more boring than you may expect. It's not a blinding light, it's not a thundering voice, but it's an inward desire. An inward desire plus time for deliberation equals a godly way forward. A very competent man with no desire to pastor may be called to do many good things. But if he doesn't have a desire to pastor, he's not called to be a pastor. The call to pastoral ministry is more than a desire, but it certainly can't be less. And so if Jesus is a shepherd and an overseer, a pastor, if God calls this a noble task and puts it in a category of great importance, then why would we not desire this, brothers? All right, so you have the desire. What's to accompany the good desire? Leads us to point number two, the elder's character. The elder's character. We see this in verses 2 through 7. What we'll see in verses 2 through 7 is a picture of a noble ministry beginning to emerge. And then what we'll realize is that a noble ministry requires noble ministers. A noble pastorate requires noble pastors. And so the desire that one has, it's it's not enough to say, hey, I have a desire, so make me a pastor. No, the desire must be matched with godly character and spiritual maturity. And that's what we begin to see in these verses 2 through 7. This is what takes up most of the passage, and it's what Paul's attention runs to. And depending on how you break it up, 14, 15, 16 qualifications that he will walk through, all but one of those is about a man's character. About his character. Just think today, when a church is looking for a new pastor, think of all of the things that people are prone to look for and maybe either assume or not even regard the man's character. And that's what the overwhelming majority of the New Testament writings about church leadership is built around. Elders are to lead and to serve from a base of godliness. And so the most important feature about elders, it's not their strategy, it's not their vision, it's not their humor, it's not their education, it's not their friendliness, it's not their administration, it's their godliness. Every church member must understand this. It's about godliness. It's about integrity in all of life. And as Paul's writing, he he writes in the Greek, there's literally one sentence, 57 words. He's not trying to make this exhaustive list. He's wanting to begin somewhere and just make the point that elders are to be those who are exemplary in all of life. 
They're exemplary in, in all that they do. I appreciate what D.A. Carson says about this list. He says it's remarkable at just how unremarkable it is. It's remarkable at just how unremarkable it is. And if you know our elders, you know this to be true. It's remarkable at how unremarkable we are. And I say that not in any sort of false humility. I say that in all sincerity. The fact that God's grace would meet us in our collection of need, it's only God's grace that anything remotely positive would be happening. There's no omnipresence. You don't, the elder doesn't have to be omniscient. He doesn't have to know everything. He doesn't have to be everywhere. He doesn't have to have all the power. No, there's no omnis required. Elders are those who are content to leave all of that to God. And elders that want to pretend to be omni-anything should be concerning. As I stated earlier, this list should be true of all Christians in some manner. But it's the elders who should lead out in consistently displaying what the heart and the hands of Jesus treasuring Christians look like day in and day out. And so what kind of man should an elder be? Well, let's dive in. Number one, he must be above reproach. He must be above reproach. And I'm not going to say, I mean, all of these are going to come from verses 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. He must be above reproach. That really is the summary statement upon which everything else is going to fall under. It, it, it would almost seem that Paul could have just put a colon after above reproach. And everything else is just going to describe what that means to be above reproach. Elders should not bring reproach upon the name of Christ. They shouldn't bring reproach upon himself. They shouldn't bring reproach upon the church. His life must be free from legitimate, substantiated accusations. Oh, be clear, there will be complaints and accusations made against elders. But those accusations and complaints, they don't stand up over time. You want to be able to say about your elder, follow him as he's following Christ, not because he's sinless, but because he's dependably faithful. Dependably faithful. I praise God. I won't say this after every one of these, but I, I genuinely praise God for the men who serve as elders in this church. Uh, they are brothers who I believe engender and embody being above reproach. And church, whether you recognize it or not, that is a massive gift of grace to you. And I think this is true not only of our current elders. I think this is true of the last uh, three elders that have rotated off. Jay Popovich and Jim Hollenbach and Jay Gregory. God has been gracious to Covenant Life to give us men who are nowhere near perfect. Who are... Okay, I was going to make a joke. Who are desperately in need of grace, but who are being shaped because of God's grace. And so, all Christians should be above reproach, but elders must be.
Secondly, an elder is to be a one-woman man. Much has been written about the scope of this phrase. Some people think, is, it, is he just sort of uh, prohibiting polygamy? Uh, we can all agree that he is prohibiting polygamy in that phrase, a one-woman man. But I believe more is being addressed than merely prohibiting polygamy. If you're called to pastoral leadership, it will be revealed in your faithful, monogamous, sexually pure, and biblically ordered marriage. Let me say it another way. If you were engaging in adultery, flirtatious with other women, regularly consuming pornography, then you are not being a one-woman man, and you are not qualified to be a pastor today. He is to be a one-woman man. Follow him as he is following Christ. So does this mean that an elder, can an elder be divorced? Well, uh, church history has a lot of opinions and a lot of thoughts about the answer to that question. I believe I would speak on behalf of our elders to say that it depends on how you understand both the details surrounding the divorce and secondly, the nature of the marriage covenant. Those are bigger conversations. If you have questions, I would gladly point you to Bob Walker <laughs> to have those. Uh, I would gladly, I would love to have those conversations with you. Uh, but I don't know if we can just say outright, yes, disqualified, no, qualified. Can he be divorced? How do you understand the marriage covenant, the nature of it? And what are the details surrounding the situation? Can an elder be single? I believe so. Uh, you would hate to come up with a list of qualifications that would somehow prohibit Jesus and Paul himself from being an elder at the church. I believe a single man can be an elder just as much as I believe that a married man who has no children can be an elder or a married man who only has one child. And a lot of people will bring up, can a single person be an elder? Because later in the qualifications, it would, it would say that one who's married and his children, plural. I don't think Paul's saying that those that are married with no children or married with only one children or even unmarried are disqualified from being an elder. But single men who are elders, their lives ought to reflect this type of purity, sexual purity, and relational purity in their singleness. And so your elders are to be a one woman, or to be one woman men. All Christians should be sexually and relationally pure. But elders must be. Number three, I'm putting the next two together. He is to be temperate and prudent. Perhaps your translations say sober-minded and self-controlled. He is to be sober-minded and self-controlled, temperate and prudent. Temperate means to have biblical clarity about life and reality. They're sober-minded. Elders must be level-headed. They must be reasonable. They must be under control. They must be steady. They must not be hot-headed or reactive. 
They're not enslaved to their passions or their appetites. No, they must be temperate and prudent. They must be thoughtful men of good judgment whose advice and counsel you benefit from and that you desire. An elder must bridle himself out of obedience to God and out of love for others. All Christians should be temperate and prudent, but elders must be. Number four, an elder is to be respectable. He's to be respectable. Elders are to live a life that makes the gospel attractive. They are to commend God's ways to others in how they live. It's not just, is he a great teacher? It's, does that message adorn his life as well? Where he goes, does he garner the respect of those around him? Sacrificial life and leadership, it evokes admiration that causes people to hold the elder in high regard. An elder has gravitas about him. Where at even at the places that you disagree with him, you still respect the stand that he takes and the manner in which he takes it. Did you hear that? You don't have to agree with every point of doctrine with your elders. But even in your disagreement, you ought to respect the point that he, the stance that he takes, and even the manner in which he takes it. All Christians should be respectable, but elders must be. Number five, hospitable. He is to be hospitable. Elders are to share with strangers from without and to share with the flock from within. Your elders shouldn't be men who are only visible on Sundays. Said another way, your elders who were shepherds should smell like sheep. They should be spending time opening not just home, but opening life. You feel like there is an openness to your elders. They love you. They display their love by opening their lives and their homes to you. Hospitable elders display something. We could go through another study. would just be to go through and to think, how do each of these characteristics, something that an elder would model, what does that show and demonstrate and preach to the world and to the church about who Christ is? And this is in one of those places. Christ is welcoming to his own. He pursued those that were outcast. So too should the elder. And over the last year, COVID has limited us in hospitality. But I pray that the routines and the rhythms that we've sort of had to jump into, I pray that those wouldn't become the norm. I pray that hospitality would abound in our church and it would be led out by our elders. All Christians should be hospitable, but elders must be. I'm going to skip the next one. We're going to come back to it. The qualification of able to teach. Number six, he is not to be addicted to wine. He's not to be a drunkard. A good question to ask is, does, does our elders, uh, do our elders avoid harmful excesses in their appetites and in their actions? 
A pastor cannot have his judgment undermined by the influence of alcohol. If so, he is proving that he is unfit to exercise God-given judgment. Throughout the Bible, alcohol is seen as a good gift from the Lord. It's meant to gladden our hearts, but like many good gifts, they can be dangerous. And so you want Ephesians 5.18 to not get drunk with wine is a command for all Christians. And so all Christians should not be addicted to wine. But elders most certainly must not be. Number seven, he's not to be pugnacious. It's the last time you used that word. He's not to be violent, but rather gentle. It is a sad reality that is just, we think of leadership across the board. So many leaders are marked by a short fuse or are prone to bully others with their position, maybe even sometimes with physical force. But not so with an elder. No, elders are those men who have a gentle strength. That strength that's controlled and reasonable and humble and peaceable. All the while being faithful to his post. A gentle elder doesn't break bruised reeds. A gentle elder doesn't quench quivering wicks. Pastors are easily and often attacked and offended and hurt which is why, they, why it's vital that they demonstrate and model the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. Again, why is this important? Because it helps people see and know and experience how God is with His people. Praise God that our Savior is gentle. We know all too well the need for a lot of grace when we're deserving of wrath and we experience His gentleness. All Christians should not be violent, but elders must not be, and instead, they should be gentle. Number eight, he's to be peaceable, not quarrelsome. It's really easy to love a good fight, and some of y'all love a good fight. I mean, doesn't it feel good to get your licks in? And in case you didn't know, there was a lot to fight about in 2020. I wonder how often you found yourself in the midst of fights. You find yourself prone to be a lightning rod for controversy? I mean, you just, you love to get in and get the hands dirty. If that's true of you, then you may not be fit to be an elder. Those that are drawn to conflict like a moth drawn to a bug zapper are not fit for the ministry. Now, let's be clear. Elders must fight, but they fight off the wolves. They don't spend their time getting into conversations day in and day out where they find themselves needing to fight about every conversation that they're in. Elders look to agree. They look to have things in common with God's people. They're not contrarian for the sake of a good showdown. All, all Christians should be peaceable, but elders must be. 
Number nine, he's to be free from the love of money. Money is a good gift, but it's dangerous. And the pastor must lead in generosity and wisdom in stewarding God's provision. I mean, I have these conversations with our interns all the time about being a lover of money. And, and, and I think of lover of money as kind of flamboyant cars and flamboyant house and flamboyant clothes. And, fl- and the reality is that a man who says, I aspire for the office, and you have to chase the man down because he's not giving regularly and faithfully, I just think, man, he's, he's, he's loving money in a way that is showing that he's not fit for the office. You shouldn't have to remind your elders to be generous. They ought to be going out of the joy that's in their heart, out of their ways to be generous. Pastors, elders must lead in generosity and in wisdom and stewarding God's provision. Ministry decisions do not revolve around money. And they do not center on a concern for financial future. Elders live in a way that makes clear to all that their treasures are not stored up here but in heaven. All Christians are to be free from the love of money, but elders must be. Number 10, he must manage his household well. An elder is called to leadership into two families, a spiritual family and a physical family, biological family. And the one qualifies him for the other. And if you read the the question in verse 5, but if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? The rhetorical question is asked, and the answer is, he won't. He will not take care of the household of God if he's not taking care of his own household. And so the word there for manage, again, it's to care. You cannot care for God's family if you can't care for your own. So do you want to know whether or not a man is ready to lead God's family? Look to see if he's faithfully leading his own. Look there. Anybody can play church on Sunday. And anybody can pretend with community. But those in the home, they know the true man. If his wife and his children gladly follow and flourish under his leadership, chances are the church will too. The recipe for locating men who are faithful is not to search for successful entrepreneurs, but to be looking for faithful husbands and fathers. And so does this mean that the children have to be Christians in order for a man to be an elder? I see no reason why Paul would place a responsibility upon the shoulder of an elder that belongs upon the shoulder of God. I don't understand Paul to say, elders have to be those who ensure that their children are Christians. Contrary to every desire of every elder, that is not something that an elder can control. It doesn't mean that their children have to be Christians, but they must be respectful. A man who's willing to tolerate defiance in his home isn't to be trusted with the church. The man who crushes his children with his domineering leadership will not be gentle with the flock. And so a man whose home is falling apart will not have the margin nor the credibility to give watch to the church. All Christians should manage their household well, but elders must. Number 11, he must not be a new convert. 
Pastoral ministry is a dangerous calling, and it's possible to stumble and fall into condemnation of the devil. And so Paul says, don't make a new convert a pastor. Give him time. Let him mature. Let him be tested. Let him be humbled. If you fast-track a man into ministry, arrogance and pride are real dangers. They don't give the new recruit who signs up for the forces all of the stripes on the first day. The devil is arrogant, and a pastor who thinks more highly of himself than he ought is falling into the same sin as the devil. An elder must be converted, but not a recent convert. And number 12, he must have a good reputation with outsiders. A man who has a terrible reputation with outsiders is falling into the devil's snare. The devil wants to undermine the church in her mission. And so an elder with a bad reputation does not represent the Savior well and is not a model for his people. A good question to ask, is he the same guy that I talk to on Sunday that I see post on social media on Tuesday? Do those outside see something different in how you live or they just say, you're really no different than me? This is the qualification that would say when outsiders and those outside of the church, if they hear, oh, this guy's becoming an elder, they wouldn't think, him? Are you, are you, you guys are just desperate? Are you looking for anybody? No, they would say, that totally makes sense. All Christians should have a good reputation with outsiders, but elders must. And with all of that focus on his character, make mention of the last one, verse or number three, the elders work. The elders work. The end of verse two, you have the qualification, he must be able to teach. If we were to survey the New Testament for the responsibilities of the elder, we would see Acts chapter 20, we would see Ephesians chapter four, we would see 1 Timothy three, we would see Titus one, we would see Hebrews 13, we would see 1 Peter five. And what would begin to, to emerge is that there are really two responsibilities, uh, a pastor, an elder, is to teach and to lead. They've been, they must have a God-given ability to open God's word and to rightly teach it and apply it to God's people. The elder will feed the flock. The elder will protect the flock. He will care for the flock. He will nurture the flock. He will serve the flock. He will build up the flock. And all of that will happen with a pronounced ability, a God-given gift to open the scriptures and declare the meaning of the word and to be helpful in applying it. And in a list of qualifications, 1 Peter says elders must hold firmly. They must not be squishy or loose. They must hold firmly to the gospel so that he can encourage some and refute others. Let me tell you what I don't think this means. I don't think that every elder must be a great pulpit speaker. I don't think this means that every elder should be the same kind of caliber preacher. Now, he may not be the greatest pulpit preacher. He may not be the best public speaker. But if he can handle the word and he can open it and he can explain it and he can call people to it, maybe even really, really well in one-on-one -on -one settings or small group settings, that's a brother who's qualified to be an elder. An elder, it, it's, it's an elder is one who keeps coming back to this is what the word says. An elder without a Bible is an elder without authority. And so the elder opens the book and he feeds God's people. And with any problem that's brought to him, he says, let's look and see what God's word says. 
A pastor should be a man who knows and loves the Bible, who knows and loves the doctrines of the Bible, and who knows and loves the God of the Bible. And at any moment, he's ready, and he has the ability to explain and defend it. And so this is what you should expect from your pastors. This is what you should be looking for in future pastors. If you were a church member, labor, labor to stand on and to make known that this is the standard that you will hold pastors to. And again, men, do you aspire to this? It is a good desire. I'm not talking about titles. I'm not talking about standing up and preaching. I'm talking about do you long to teach and pour out your life in service to others? Mark this. The very essence and the heart of leadership is taking initiative when we otherwise, when we otherwise wouldn't take it. It's making sacrifices that we otherwise wouldn't make. It's guiding people somewhere that they otherwise would not have gone. Pastoring is when we embrace short-term personal difficulties for long-term corporate gains. Christian leadership then at home or in the church is not for those that are clawing for honor and recognition, but for those who are most ready to fall to their knees and be inconvenienced by the needs of others. They are those who, in a sense, have their house sufficiently in order to be able to turn their attention to serving others. And instead of pursuing their own immediate benefit, they are willing to sacrifice for the benefit of others. There's something I know about every one of us as we hear this list that we say, number one, who in the world could ever be that? But number two, I would love to follow someone who could lead like that. We long to follow one who would lead like that. There's also a problem because every one of us would say, I don't lead like that. Like the list that you just ran through, I fail at so many of those. And if what we were doing is really just kind of, kind of do a survey and see, are we better than generally the population out there? Maybe that would be okay. But that's a problem because we are being compared to the holiness of a perfect God who requires people to uphold every qualification that I just went through. And you say, okay, if I start today, maybe I can... Okay, even if you started today, you would still fail. But even if you didn't, what about all of the other failures in your past? How do you cover that? You see, the Christian faith isn't really about a good uh, set of rules that you can kind of give yourself to in order to, to do good and to be good and to earn God's favor. The, the Christian life is really of saying... I can't live in the way that I'm called to live. And that means I'm deserving of God's just punishment for that. And if that were the end of the story, then I would go into an eternity separated from the God I was created for and I'm accountable to. But the good news of the Christian faith is that Christ would come and Christ would uphold everything that you and I fail to uphold. I mean, He perfectly matches the qualifications listed here. And do you know what that does? That earns the approval of the Father. And he gets to the end of his life and he dies this death on the cross as a substitute for all who would repent and believe. Which means that if you and I are willing to repent and believe from, turn from all of our failures and say the things that we can't do, we trust that Christ has done. 
and in trusting that Christ has done these things, then the righteousness that Christ deserved is placed on you. It's placed on me. And the, and the wrath that we deserved is taken off of us and placed on Christ. And so the good news is that in a sermon listing out qualifications of who pastors must be, the good news is that in, in everything that you can't be and do, Christ has been and done. And if you will turn from your sin and place your faith and your trust in Him, then you can know forgiveness. And you can know what it's like to be under the care of one who loves and leads and protects and serves like this. That's a really, really good story. But if he's still in the grave, then that's just like every other religion, which is what makes Christianity unique. Is that on the third day, he rose triumphantly over death. If you have questions about that, talk to anyone. It would be our joy to show you what it's like to come under the good, loving care of Jesus the shepherd. And so Covenant Life Church, we have the opportunity to flip the script on the alarming trends as it relates to pastoral leadership. Instead of being noted for scandal and disqualifying sin, what if Covenant Life were a church that shocked people with the dependability and good character and devotion to God's word and his people? I pray that many of you brothers in here would begin to aspire to this and you would allow the Spirit of God to refine you and to qualify you for such service. And I pray that sisters would come to expect this from Christ's following men. In Covenant Life, I pray that we would fight for elders who live and love and lead and serve like this. Let's pray. Gracious God.